will be our text this Lord's Day as we continue uh, to walk through the book of Acts together. Uh, last week, if you were with us, we were walking through Acts 15 and started that chapter. You may remember what was taking place there. Uh, essentially, at this point in Acts, you have uh, Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys, and as they're going throughout the Roman Empire, uh, sharing about this great gospel of Christ, uh, many people are repenting. Among those people were the Gentiles. Uh, if you've not been with us, if you're not familiar with the Gentiles, the Gentiles were essentially uh, those non-Jewish people from the nations, uh, born outside of the people of God. And as such, the Jewish people had looked at this great separation between them and the Gentiles, had prided themselves on not being among the Gentiles. They saw them as a unholy, ungodly people. And so you would think then that as the gospel goes out to the Gentiles and they begin to repent and place their faith in Christ, that, that would be cause for great celebration. Uh, but we see it's cause for great conflict within the early church because uh, there were some in the church who felt like, well, no, in order for these Gentiles to become Christians, they essentially need to become Jews first. They need to uh, obey all these things in the law that we've obeyed. They need to follow the rules. And so last week what we looked at in Acts 15 was, was the protest that comes then as some from Jerusalem come down to Antioch and they began to preach to these Gentile Christians that they were indeed not Christians if they had not become Jews, if they had not been circumcised yet. Paul and Barnabas hear of this, they debate this, and ultimately that leads to the first council in the church where they gather to discuss this very issue. How are we saved? And can the Gentiles be saved apart from these Jewish laws and traditions. And that's where we pick up this Lord's Day. Remembering that as the council gathered there, it was Peter who stood up and reminded the council, those apostles and elders, that we indeed come to faith through Christ, through grace, and that works are not a part of us becoming Christians. And yet, as we'll see today, those works certainly should follow when we do indeed become believers. And so we'll pick up here at that church council, Acts 15, beginning there in verse 12. Uh, if you're able to, out of reverence for God's word, if you would stand as I read this text for us this Lord's Day. Remembering this is the holy inspired word of God to his people, and this is what it says to us. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that what has, which has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas 
called Barsabbas, and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Father God, we thank you for this word and we trust and pray that you would use it in our lives today. Pray that your spirit would be at work now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have shared before about how poor my vision is. In fact, if I remove these glasses, I can't tell if the church is full or somewhat empty right now. I can't tell who any of you are. I can't tell much when I don't have these glasses on, but when I put them on, suddenly everything becomes much clearer. I can perceive things. At home, I have an alarm clock right beside my bed. I've got those big red digital numbers. If I don't have my glasses on, I can't even read that alarm clock. I cannot tell what's going on around me if I don't have my glasses on. But if I put these on, I'm able to clearly perceive and clearly understand things that I'm looking at. It's the lens through which I look that helps me to accurately see the world around me. For most of us in this room, when we start to look at God's Word, when we start to even try to understand who God is, we have a set of lenses that we put on. For many of us, that lens comes from our tradition we grew up in. It might come from our culture. It might come from what someone in our family taught us. It might just come from popular opinion, but it's a lens that we look through and that we see God through. So, for example, when you read the Bible, you may put on the book of rules lens. You may just see the Bible as, well, this is a list of do's and don'ts, and as long as I do what it says to do and I don't do what it says not to do, then I'll be okay. Some of you might put on a a different lens. That lens might be the the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament lens, where when you come to the Bible, you say, well, God's very different in the Old and New Testament. You know, in the Old Testament, it seems like He was just really angry and there was a lot of wrath and judgment there. But in the New Testament, through this lens, you might say, well, He's just kind of mellowed out and He's just gracious and and, and loving. And and through that lens, you may find yourself or others saying, well, I'm much more of a God of the New Testament person than a God of the 
Old Testament. Uh, then there's a lens that I like to call the, the chicken soup for the soul lens, where, where basically you come to the Bible and through this lens, you're basically just looking for inspirational quotes. Well, what's here that can just lift me up today? What's here that can just encourage me today? What's a, what's a verse that I can send to someone to encourage them or put on my bumper sticker or my t-shirt? And rather than kind of reading as a whole, you just kind of pick out those words of encouragement you're looking for. No matter what the lens is that you see God's word through, they all have their flaws. And fundamentally, the flaw is this. We don't need to put on a lens in order to understand God's word. God's word is the lens through which we understand who God is. And when we put on all these different layers between us and the word, then we're not accurately able to discern who God is because God has revealed himself to us through his word that we might clearly understand who he is and what his will for us is. But if we come to the Bible with all these preconceived notions or, well, I think this about God or I think this about God or surely God must be like this or like this, then all of that clouds our vision and we're not able to clearly see who God has revealed himself to be. And so the challenge for you and the challenge for me this and each Lord's Day is that we take off those glasses, those lenses. I can't see the word clearly without these on. But you and I can't understand who God is accurately without this. And as we read through this, as we study through this, we find that God has very clearly revealed to us who he is and what his word is. And so I want to challenge perhaps some of those lenses that cloud things a bit as we walk through this text this morning. Beginning with the first point there in your notes. The Bible is not a book of rules. It is the story of God's redemptive plan for his people. It's not a book of rules. And yet, that's how we often identify it. And if that's how you identify the Bible, well, that's going to lead you to all kinds of trouble and issues as you walk through life and attempt to walk through it in faith. Remember the context of what we're dealing with here. These Pharisee Christians felt that the Gentile Christians weren't really Christians because they hadn't followed the rules. You, you probably remember a few things about the Pharisees if you've read much of the Gospels. Uh, Jesus was interacting with the Pharisees often, and what you find is that the Pharisees were very focused on the law. The problem is they weren't focused on all of the law. What they were known for was picking out minute details of the law and really camping out on those issues but ignoring the greater teaching of the law and really ignoring what the point of the law was altogether. And so Jesus would often confront this and help them to see, yeah, you, you might be particular about this point of the law and trying to keep it, but you're such a hypocrite because you're, you're completely ignoring the greater context of what's here. And so, for example, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and over and over again he's calling them hypocrites. And here's one of the things he says to them. You blind guides. Now think about that for a second. <laughs> How can you guide someone if you're blind? That's his point. They think they're guides, but they can't. they're blind. They don't see. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Well, what was Jesus saying there? Well, to the Pharisees, to the Jewish people, both the gnat and the camel were considered unclean. And so... 
least they put into their bodies something that was unclean. They would go through this very diligent practice when they were drinking something. So, for example, if they had wine there in a cistern, they would pour the wine, but in order to pour the wine into the glass, they would filter it over and over and over again and strain it to make sure they got any little tiny insect or bug that might have flown into that out. Because if they didn't, well, they'd be putting something in their body that was unclean. And then they might pride themselves on, I have drank that which is clean. I am a clean person. You know, what does Jesus say? He says, you'll go to all that trouble to strain out a gnat, but then you'll eat an entire camel. Well, obviously, they didn't eat a camel. But what Jesus is doing there is he's calling to their attention the, the largest animal there in Palestine, a camel, again, also considered unclean. He's saying, you'll, you'll go to this minute detail of straining out this gnat, but you've completely missed the big picture. He was helping them to see they've completely misunderstood the law. If you sit down and read through the entirety of the law, you do not walk away from that saying, well, I can accomplish that. Oh, my goodness. We can't even follow rules we set for ourselves. Well, we can't even raise ourselves to our own standard. <laughs> I've mentioned before, come January 1st, some of us in this room will join the health club and go on the new diet plan. We'll drive past all those gyms and January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, man, those parking lots are just full. Not so much on February 1st, <laughs> March 1st, or in July. And so if we sit down one day and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go on a diet. And then a week later, we're at the Chinese buffet. We can't even live according to a standard we set in our own lives. How foolish are we to think that we can somehow attain this standard of perfection that's laid out for us in the law? And so the law was not given to us so that we could be perfect according to it and somehow be righteous and holy. The law was given to us so that we could see how imperfect and how unholy we are and so that we might see our desperate need for a redeemer. The Pharisees had completely missed out on this. And so James comes and reminds them of the big picture. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He was a leader there in the early church in Jerusalem. And he reminds them of the big picture by quoting for them from the Old Testament prophets. And he basically says, listen guys, what Peter has shared is in complete agreement with the big picture. Do you remember what the prophets told us? And then he quotes, the uh, majority of his quote is from Amos. And notice what he says in this quote. He starts talking about this, this rebuilding and how God's going to bring together this, this remnant. And, and, and all the nations is what it says there in Amos. All the Gentiles here, it's the same word. All the nations, all the Gentiles who are called by his name. What James is doing here is he's very clearly helping them to understand what we're seeing taking place right now. It's a part of the big picture. But you're missing out on the big picture because you're so focused on seeing God as this do's and don'ts God. As, well, if I follow the rules, if I don't follow the rules. You're trying so hard to keep the rules, you've missed out on the creator of all the rules and knowing him in the first place. And so James is able to kind of pull them back and say, okay, look at the big picture. And friends, that's what we need to do often. Because what you'll find is if you see the Bible as a set of rules, and if you think that your relationship with God is dependent on, well, if I do this and if I don't do this, that that's how it's all going to work out, you're going to be disappointed. 
probably already are. Because you're going to come to a point in your life where you've been doing the things you think you're supposed to do and you've not been doing the things you think you're not supposed to do. But life doesn't turn out the way you thought it was going to. And in those moments, you look to God and you start to think, well, God, I upheld my end of the bargain. What about you? You're going to suffer. You're going to watch loved ones suffer. You're going to go through trials and you're going to be tempted to think, but God, I've been so faithful Why aren't you being faithful? And that's where we have to step back and realize this lens we're looking at God through, this whole do's and don'ts, well, it's clouding our understanding of who God really really is. And we need to look at the big picture that James points the people towards. And so you look at that big picture and you look back and you see creation. And there in the garden, God creates perfection. He creates a sanctuary. He puts Adam and Eve in it. He says, worship me. He, he, he gives them dominion over it, but he reminds them they're not God. He is by placing a tree there. And he says, I don't want you to eat of that tree. If you do, you'll have the knowledge of good and evil. That, that, that tree is a reminder to you that you've got dominion over this garden, but I've got dominion over you in all things. Well, you know the story. Adam and Eve sin. They rebel against God. And with that sin comes the fall and death and disease and destruction and ruin and God's perfect provision of the sanctuary adam and eve are are removed from that we see this broken fellowship with their creator but in that fall god promises redemption genesis three fifteen, he says he will write all these things through the redeemer who will come who will crush the head of the enemy and he points them forward to the gospel and as you read the old testament you start to see all these road signs just pointing to jesus pointing to jesus that's what the law is do this don't do this well I fail. I can't keep this list. Wait a second. If I can't obtain holiness, somebody's got to do it for me. There's Jesus. The one true perfect sacrifice who dies in our place. Who He's the only one who's righteous. And we become righteous through him. Not because we follow a set of rules. And so when we see the big picture, we start to see this. Well, there's creation. There's the fall. There's redemption. But then, then again, here's this problem. Well, if, if we're redeemed, meaning that, that we have heard the gospel... We've responded to the gospel through repentance. We've turned from our sin. We've turned to God. We've, we've repented. Then how come in that moment everything's just not perfect? How come we still have suffering and we still have sickness and death and disease? It's because all things haven't been restored yet. That, that's the completion. You have creation, fall, redemption, and then one day restoration where Christ says, I am making all things new. One day there'll be a new heaven a new earth. And what we read in Revelation about this is there's no more sickness, no more death, no more disease, no more tears, no more mourning, no more loss. And we live in between those moments as believers, between redemption and restoration. That's the big picture, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. But here's the problem for the Pharisee Christians. Here's the problem for us. The Pharisees were so focused on the minute details of the law, they lost the big picture I don't think that's so much our struggle today. But there's something else we focus on. Our our focus is on the minute details of our lives. And we get so focused on the minute details of our lives that we don't step back and see how our life fits into the greater big picture of God and what He's doing. And so I'll give you an example. Some of you today are suffering. Or someone you love is suffering. And you're... You're having a hard time with that. 
Because this do's and don'ts lens that you'd be viewing God for, it's, it's not working out so well. Because either you've tried to be faithful or they've tried to be faithful and you thought, well, as long as I'm faithful and they're faithful and I do what I'm supposed to do and they do what they're supposed to do, then God will do this and it's all going to work out happy and fine. And yet then you find perhaps in moments when you were very faithful in your walk with God, suffering, 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 trial, trial, loss, loss. And that equation falls apart, that lens cracks. (laughs) But when you're able to step back and look at the big picture, you start to see something. You start to see that suffering goes all the way back to that garden and that perfect sanctuary. And when sin entered the picture, everything fell apart. Sickness, disease, death, murder, all the atrocities that we experience in our world, all the corruption, all the stuff on your evening news, it all goes back to the garden and the fall. And sin taints everything. That's why the Scripture says creation itself is groaning for redemption. Because the world is is completely and totally corrupted by sin and the fall. And so Christ comes and He redeems But we haven't had all things restored yet. And so when we suffer, we're able to look and see, okay, Christ suffered for me, and He said that I would suffer. And here's the great news. When I see the big picture, I see one day He restores all things and makes them new. And so whatever it is you're suffering with today, the things I'm suffering with and people I love are suffering with, the Scripture says, one day, no more. And friends, that's, A great promise and cause for great hope. When we're able to step back and take the attention off of ourselves and me, 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 and what I think I deserve or what should or shouldn't happen to me, and able to see, okay, God, what's the big picture here? We're able to see, as painful as it might be in this moment, God, you are indeed restoring all things and you will indeed make all things new. And God is the one who does that because God is the one whose steadfast love endures forever. Notice this quote that James shares, this phrase you see in it. I will. He doesn't quote God saying, you should, you should, you should. He quotes from the prophets where God says, I will return, I will rebuild, I will rebuild, I will restore. And friends, that is a great picture, big picture reminder of the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and how God indeed is in control at times when we feel the least amount of control in our lives. It's a great truth for us to be reminded of. And it's a great reminder to us that this whole idea of if I just follow the rules, it'll all work out okay. It just doesn't doesn't work out. This brings us to the second point there in your notes. Point two, following rules will never save us. Salvation comes from repentance and faith, which results then in holiness. And so here James clearly states to the Gentiles that, that no, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't, you don't need these works to be saved. But then notice what he does. He says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to write a letter to them. Remember again, the concern has been people telling them, in order to be saved, you need to do these things. And the council gets together and what they've decided is, no, they don't. We're not going to put that burden of the law on them. But notice what James writes to them. He basically writes them a letter and says, don't do any of these things. (laughs) And so that can be a bit confusing for us because we're thinking, well, isn't the whole point of this council to tell them that that their works aren't going to achieve their faith and they don't need to do all these things? And yet James is saying, 
You need to do some things. Here's what's going on. If you this morning think that somehow your works will save you, you're wrong. Why can I say that? Because the Bible says that's wrong. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace we've been saved through faith. Goes on to say it's not as a result of works. Works do not save us. And so no one is going to stand before God one day and say, Well, God, let me tell you all the things I did to deserve to be here this morning, today, whenever. That's not going to happen. Because our works don't save us. And I think deep down, most of us understand this. Even people who think somehow they're going to go to God, go to heaven because they're a good person. If you really start to ask them, tell me about how good you are, how perfect you are. Even if they don't acknowledge it in their heart, they know they're not perfect. They know they fall short. And if for some reason this morning you're here and you don't know that, then consider this. Illustration I've used many times. If I could somehow connect you to a mechanism that would broadcast your thoughts to the world for 24 hours. Every single thought that went through your mind, including the ones going through your mind right now. And I said, I'm going to pay you a whole hundred dollars to wear that around. Would anybody take me up on that? Thousand dollars? Ten thousand dollars? Most of us in our right mind I don't think would do that because there's stuff that goes through your mind and my mind sometimes and God's grace is is that it doesn't go further than that. We are reminded of our own depravity day after day after day. And so when we start to think somehow that we're going to overcome all that because we wrote a check or we volunteered at a community center or we helped our neighbor fix flat tire, that's foolishness. So the question is, well, if works don't save us, then why do works matter? Well, they definitely matter, and the Scripture points to this, but it does it this way. Works do not save us, but saving faith should produce works in our life. So the work might look the same, but if it's there because you think it's going to save you, you're wrong. And if it's there because you are saved, then it should be. <laughs> same action, different motivation. And what James is pointing to, what the Scripture is pointing us to here, is following the rules doesn't save us, but if we are indeed saved, if we repented, we have saving faith, well then that should produce something in our life. The Scripture refers to this something as holiness. And I think that's where James is going now in this letter. He's not telling these Gentile Christians, if you don't do these things, you'll be saved. In fact, notice what he says to them later in the, the chapter there, after they've read the letter to them. There at the end of it, I believe it's in verse 29, he says, if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Not you will be saved. He's saying, as those with saving faith, do these things, and there's reason for this. For example, he mentions to them that they should abstain from things polluted by idols. He talks about not eating things, the, the, the blood or things that are strangled. All those things are pointing towards uh, sacrifices made to false gods. And so there in their culture, you had all these false temples, false gods, and people would make sacrifices to them. I, I've shared before about 
my time in Southeast Asia, and there in Southeast Asia, you very much have all these false temples, false gods. In fact, if you just walk down the street, like you were walking up the road here in Bloomfield, what you would find in front of each person's home, rather than you know a mailbox or the, the number of their house or some plants and things out there, you would find this little miniature house built outside of their bigger house or bigger apartment. And then what you would find, pretty much every door, you'd find in that house some type of little offerings they make each morning. And so sometimes it's some fruit they have out there. Sometimes they're burning incense. Sometimes it's things that are just random, like a, an open drink or, or just all kinds of different items they just put out there. Their thought is, I want the gods to bless me, but I don't want any creepy spirits in my house. So if I build the creepy spirits a little house and I give them something, then they'll stay in the little house, I'll stay in my big house, me and the creepy gods will be separated from one another. That, that's pretty much why they do it. They think they're going to appease these gods with these offerings. In Acts 15, what's being described here, what's being dealt with here, is people then, in the same way, they're going to appease all these false gods. But instead of offering them fruit or something, they're bringing them massive livestock, and they're slaughtering it, and they're offering it an altar. And then what they would do with that livestock after it had been slaughtered is they'd take it to the market and they'd sell it. And they'd identify that it was meat that had been sacrificed to idols. It was actually cheaper to buy that than it was to buy the more kosher meat. And so, for the Gentiles, they didn't grow up with all these Levitical eating codes. It was much cheaper for them just to go buy the meat sacrificed to idols. So why does James say, don't do that? (laughs) Because as you'll note, James shares with them how in all these cities... From ancient generations, verse 21, there are synagogues. What he's saying is that there are Jewish people that follow these Levitical eating codes. And if you continue in this practice, you're going to cause a great stumbling block between you and them. There are going to be Jews who are not receptive to the gospel because they're so offended by what you're doing. Or there's going to be Jewish Christians who are going to struggle just like these other ones have and have come down and said you're not even saved. Because just because they become Christians doesn't mean their diet's changed any more than your diet or my diet changed when we repented and have faith. And so he's basically saying, don't do these things because they will cause your brother to stumble. For some of you, you may think, well, didn't, didn't Paul say it was okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Absolutely, First Corinthians chapter 8. But in that he says, listen, meat's meat. Sacrificed to idol, not sacrificed, it's meat, but... If it causes a brother to stumble, don't eat it. That's essentially what James is saying here. He's saying your witness will be affected and you'll cause a brother to stumble if you do this. So you need to stop doing this, not in order to be saved, but because you are saved. But then there's something else he mentions, and this is not a cause your brother to stumble issue. Verse 20, he says you need to abstain from sexual immorality. That that word there in the Greek is pornea, it's the... It's the word, the root word, from where we get our word in our culture today, pornography. Uh, Pornea, that Greek word pornea means any sexual sin, any intimacy outside the context of one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. That's pornea. And, And so why, out of every sin that could be mentioned, is that the one that he brings up? I think, in part, much like our culture today, it's because there was such a prevalent struggle with it in that culture. The Gentile people had been raised in these communities in the Roman Empire where they worshipped all these 
false pagan gods. And if you study much about Greek mythology and the Roman Empire in that day, you find how twisted some of their religious practices were and even ways they would worship and how all types of immorality crept into that. And so it's very important that James draws a line here and says, all right, listen, now that you're saved, you need to get away from that. So that's one reason, but I think the second reason is this. Out of all the sins that we read about in the Scripture, this is one that takes us all the way back to the garden because there in the garden, what does God establish? One man and one woman have a covenant of marriage. And what you see happens as a result of the fall is everything becomes corrupted. And I think nothing's become, become corrupted more than that one man, one woman, one flesh union in the covenant of marriage. And so any intimacy that takes place outside of that, that falls under the umbrella of pornea, of sexual immorality. Everybody's got their excuse. Everybody's got their, well, what about this? What The Scripture's really, really clear on this issue. Of all the things that he could have mentioned, he points out this one. And so some might read this and say, yeah, but, but look at the context there. I mean, he did it also with meat sacrificed to idols. So if meat sacrificed to idols is really okay, then, then, then couldn't this be okay in certain situations? Well, that's where we have the greater testimony of Scripture. In passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, where Paul says this very clearly, flee sexual immorality. That, that word flee there in the Greek actually means this. It means you're moving toward something and you stop and you run in the other direction out of fear for the danger that's coming. Repentance. And so it's kind of like this. Today, a bunch of rain, road was covered up in places. Uh, imagine as you're leaving today, if you were driving north and you were going to cross over the dam there at Taylorsville Lake and there were signs up that said, Danger ahead. The dam has broken. There is a cliff where the road once was. Do not drive this direction. What would you do? I'm guessing that most of you would not drive over the cliff. There might be a few of us here. Maybe Cameron Roby. He might hit that gas and just go for it. But I'm just guessing most of us, while we might want to get close to see it, we would not try to drive over it. Why? Because it's dangerous. Because we know what's going to happen. Our car is going to go off a cliff and we're probably going to die. And most of us don't have that death wish. And so what are we going to do? Oh, danger ahead. Turn the car around. Go the other way. The scripture puts up those signs all over the place and says, danger ahead. Don't try to jump the cliff. And when it says flee... That isn't something to be taken lightly. In fact, I find it interesting that in the New Testament teaching, it actually says we are to resist the devil, but to flee sexual immorality. And so if you this morning are in any context outside of one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage, if you're in any type of intimate context outside of that, God's word's really clear. Flee. Turn around. Run the other way. And if there's someone in your life saying, oh no, this is okay, or we should do this, then flee them too. Because they are taking you straight toward a cliff. And God in His grace is saying, turn around. Abstain from it. And so, in this letter, James says real clearly, listen, 
here's some stuff that you need to just watch out for. It is going to cause great uh, division between you and these Jewish Christian brothers. And here's something you just need to root it and get it out of your life. Because it is not what God has intended and He has called you to flee it and move away from it. Notice their response, point three. God's call to holiness is a blessing and not a burden. God's call to holiness is a blessing and not a burden. So often we look at the Bible and we look at these things and even instruction like that, flee sexual morality. Oh, that's a burden. And yet what we see here is it's a blessing. Notice the response of these Gentile Christians. So this council writes this letter. They send this letter. They send the the witnesses to this letter down there. They read the letter to them. Now again, what does the letter say? Okay, um, you need to change your diet. (laughs) You've been eating all this meat that you've bought really cheap in the market. You're going to have to change your budget or stop eating meat because you can't buy that anymore because it's causing your brothers to stumble. And you can imagine that might cause a little bit of groaning and complaining. And then this whole issue of intimacy that's addressed in the culture they were in. I mean, you look at our culture now and you go 40 times where we're at and that's where they were. And he's saying in this letter, you need to get away from all of that. You imagine the complexities of that and the relationships people are in that aren't honoring God at all. And this letter is saying, you need to get away from that. You need to flee from that. And so you would imagine if anything was going to be debated, it might be that letter. But notice how they responded, verse 31. They rejoice because of its encouragement. Why would they rejoice when they're told not to do all those things? Imagine you were to go to the doctor this week, just for your regular checkup. Imagine I was to go to the doctor. The doctor said, okay, Richard, uh, everything looks good here. We've got one little, one little thing just for you. You've got to stop eating sugar and anything with sugar in it. I might need to explain this. You you don't get here without sugar. I like sugar. I like things with sugar in them. I probably could just eat sugar by the spoonful. I like sweet things. If I go to the doctor and the doctor says to me, Richard, I don't want you to ever again in your entire life eat anything with sugar in it, I'm probably not going to jump up and down and be excited and give him a high five and I'm going to be kind of discouraged and depressed by that, honestly. If I go to that doctor and he says, Richard, uh, we've run some tests and your body is eaten up with cancer. I, I don't know how you're actually still alive. In fact, I've, I've reviewed this with colleagues and you're, you're not going to live more than a few weeks. You need to settle all your affairs You go on a vacation with your family. You need to hug your wife and your kids because you're not going to be alive a month from now. And I went to two or three doctors and every one of them said the same thing. And so I went back and I settled my affairs and we mourned and we grieved and we cried and I went back for one more checkup. And the doctor looked at the test and he said, Richard, there's something miraculous that's happened here. I can't explain it any other way. You don't have cancer anymore. Not a bit of it. Oh, by the way, you need to stop eating sugar. (laughs) I probably will give them a high five. I'm probably not going to be too worried about Hate Orange Bakery and donuts the next Saturday. Because what he has shared with me is so 
overwhelmingly more important than those things that I might have considered important once. Here's the point. If you have truly understood and responded to the gospel that nothing you're holding on to this morning is more valuable than the gospel you've responded to. And it's the only thing that gives you life and will make you free. And that's why Jesus says, in response to the gospel, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the people he says it to say, well, that doesn't make any sense to us because we're sons of Abraham. We're not, we're not a slave to anybody. He says, you are. You're a slave to sin. And so in our culture today, everybody's celebrating some perceived freedom they have. But here's what the scripture tells us. Apart from faith in Christ, you and I have no freedom. We're a slave to sin. And so you sit down with that friend who is celebrating their perceived freedom. And you say, well, if you're so free, then walk away with it and do, walk away from it and do something else. And they can't. Why? Because they're a slave to it, just like you and I are apart from the gospel of Jesus. But the good news is, the gospel is infinitely more valuable to us than being cleared of cancer or anything else. Because the doctor could tell me one day I've got cancer and the next day I don't. And at the end of the day, however many days I have left, I'm going to die one day. And so are you. But the gospel says for eternity, we have life in Christ. And so, whatever filter you've come to God's word with, I hope that you'll leave with this, with the filter of the gospel, and seeing the big picture, how God has created us, how we have sinned against Him, and yet how Christ has offered redemption through the gospel. And on our part then, we repent and we place our faith in Christ. And He absolutely calls us to be holy at that point. And that is not a burden. That is a blessing for those who truly know Him. And if it's a burden for you today to obey God's Word, then chances are you may not know Him like you thought. And the invitation would be get that right now and repent and place your faith in Christ. If you would pray to that end with me. Father God, we thank you for your word and the reminder from it. God, I pray for anyone here today, whether they've been in this church or another all their life, who maybe they don't understand the gospel. Maybe they hear instructions like flee sexual morality or flee any other sin and they just think that's kind of kind of silly, kind of foolish. They don't see the harm in it. Lord, I pray you might reveal your truth to them through your word and that they might come to see who you are. That, that you are entirely holy and we are entirely unholy. And the only way an unholy people will spend eternity with you is for us to be covered by the holiness of another, by Christ. So Lord, would you help us to repent and turn from whatever sin that we're in right now Lord, would you help us to receive your word with joy like the Gentile Christians received that letter with joy? Lord, would you help us today to turn away from sin in our lives, to flee it, to run away from it, and to run to the cross? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, if you